folks, there is no denying that the world is a very crazy, crazy place. And even though we try to make it safer with laws, rules and regulations and societal norms, people have still put it upon themselves to break and violate those very laws. Why is that? Why do we have people that see it fit to break the law? Well, today, let's explore some possible explanations for that. Folks, welcome back to another episode of Food for Thought. This is your host, as always, Jonathan Coots, and I have some exciting stuff to talk about today. This is uh, an area um, that I am very passionate about, uh, criminology, it's called, and it's the study of crime in a scientific way, uh, looking at why people commit crimes is, is an extremely fascinating area, and it is one with many, many different categories and subcategories and subcategories to subcategories, and also a lot of bullcrap that doesn't really make sense, uh, so there's some of that, and then there's some stuff that really does make sense, and you can look at it and say, you know what, I can see, um, I can see why that makes sense. So there's a lot of stuff out there. There's so many different theories as to why people commit crime because it's something that is um, forever fascinating since the very dawn of time, since uh, Hammurabi's code in, oh geez, I don't know, um, many, many centuries ago. um, Ever since there have been laws, there have been people who break those laws. And it's worth looking for a second as to what a law is. Um, and a lot of this topic is discover, uh, discussed in criminology, but also more broadly in sociology. And sociology is the study of social groups or human interaction uh, in a more broader sense. So in sociology, there's a term called deviance. And deviance is uh, a deviation from societal norms. Um, those norms are what society has agreed upon as good behavior. Uh, and good behavior uh, can change on what society deems appropriate. Um, for instance, public urination, uh, urinating in public was not always illegal. And in some societies, such as Guatemala, when I was down there, uh, you could see people peeing on the side of the road all the time. In fact, we even saw some people dropping a deuce on the side of the road as well. So there is that. Um, but in the good old U.S. of A., you can no longer just pee on the side of the road. It's um, public indecency or um, public exposure, indecent or improper public exposure to pee on the side of the road. So you can't do that. So at one point, it was considered just deviant, and it was frowned upon, but then enough people decided that that is not um, socially acceptable, and we made a law saying that you cannot pee in public. Uh, And that is how the process of law works. Uh, People get fed up with some sort of behavior, and they decide that you can't do that anymore, and that is the process that laws are made. And no sooner are laws made than people find creative ways to break those laws 
But then some people decide to just disregard the law entirely, or they are then forced into committing crimes and violating those laws. So why is that? Why and how can we predict whether or not people will commit crimes? Is there a way to do that? Well, all of that and more we shall discuss. So in criminology, there are a lot of different theories. Uh, some are more major, some are minor. I have highlighted um, seven of the major theories, and then a couple of them have little uh, subcategories uh, that we will also get into. Now, the first one is the classical version. It is the original idea of why people committed crimes, and that is purely rational choice, and that's what the theory is called. Um, some people will consider rational choice a subcategory of classical theories. Um, others will do it the other way around. Rational choice is a subcategory for the classical theory. Um, but either way, they both have the same principle, and that is that people make a rational decision that I am going to violate the law today, and they weigh the benefits of committing the crime versus the punishment. And it is from this that we get the whole idea that, well, the punishment needs to fit the crime, because if it doesn't, then people will be incentivized to commit the crime because there's not a punishment that befits it to prevent them from committing that crime. So I just said the same thing in, in three different ways there. Rational choice says that um, you need to have severe punishments that are swift and certain, which is something that we even have in our Constitution. Punishment for a crime needs to be swift and certain so that they know that I am getting punished for this um, in such a manner. So like in the Code of Hammurabi or in the Judeo-Christian uh, law, or I'm sorry, the Jewish law, it's not really in the Christian law, but in Leviticus, it's a an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And if you get, if um, you steal something, you get your hand cut off and, and kind of stuff like that. So that the, it, ha it serves as a deterrent effect. The punishment written in the law should serve as a deterrent effect for committing crimes. And if it doesn't, then we're not doing a good job at preventing that crime. So that's the first major theory, uh, and that's called, once again, rational choice, that criminals, they decide, you know what, today I'm going to go out and commit a crime because I need X amount of money. And so this prevention, this time in jail is not worth it. And there's a couple flaws in that because it doesn't account for someone that could be coerced into committing crime or possibly someone who needs to commit the crime because, say, they have to feed their family. Uh, so they do make the decision that, you know what, I don't think that this punishment for um, such and such a crime is enough to deter me. Uh, so there's that idea that, well, they 
don't necessarily rationally decide to. They make an irrational or illogical decision. That's another flaw that this has. Is it assumes that everybody is rational, but it also assumes that people know the punishments for the crime. That is very often not the case. They don't know that, oh, if I do this, then I could spend up to X amount of years in jail or have such other punishment as the law deems. So the main flaw with that is that they think or that they don't think about the punishments. They don't even consider them because a lot of times they don't know them. Of course, there's always exceptions to that. So idea number two, the biological theories. And I have also, I'm also going to categorize a couple of other ones in this biological theory, and that's also the psychological theory. Uh, The biological theory is also sometimes called the biochemical. And this is the idea that people are simply born um, with the chemical makeup, the genomes and the genes to actually commit the crimes. Uh, so they're born criminals. And there is some ground to this because we do know that genes can carry those kind of uh, genes that you can actually, your body can actually create genes. So if you become an alcoholic and your parents weren't, your kids are more likely to have the genetic makeup to do that. And there's some people that believe the same thing is possible for crime. If your parents were habitual offenders, you have a genetic predisposition to do those same things as if your father was an alcoholic, you do. Um, but originally, you still someone has to become an alcoholic. So if my, my father's not an alcoholic, but if I did, I would actually create a new set of genomes in me and I could pass those on to my son um, or daughter, whichever the case may be. Anyways, I don't put a whole lot of stock in that personally. Um, There might be, just as like also another one, with drugs. Uh, If you are a drug addict and um, you have kids, your kids are more predisposed to do drugs. But the difference between that and crime is there's actual chemical things that take place when you consume alcohol or drugs. Uh, When you do drugs, uh, your neural pathways change and that can have real physical repercussions. With crime, not so much. I mean, unless your crime is dealing with and doing narcotics or other drugs or alcohol bootlegging, um, and that's not even really a thing anymore. There's no bootleggers left because it's not illegal to have alcohol. But anyways, unless your crime involves you doing drugs and um, divesting drugs into the society, um, then it's not really something that you can make uh, genetically, in my opinion. Now, contrast that with our third one, which is social learning. And that's kind of the nature versus nurture. These two, uh, biological and social learning, um, Number two is it's 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 just in your nature. Like there was for a little bit uh, this idea that there was a serial killer gene. I don't remember what it's called, but that hasn't really proven to be the case at all. Um, but so the biological is it's in your nature. And you could also argue from a Christian perspective that all people are evil and they've fallen short of the glory of God, which is true. But that doesn't mean all people are criminals. Anyways, and then there's social learning, which is number three, and that is the nurture. And that is people grow up in societies um, that have a lot of crime and they kind of just learn that's all that's what they learn. They just learn that, oh, this is not necessarily unacceptable because everybody in my immediate um, vicinity 
commits crimes. Uh, so we become who we are because of what it is around us and all the behaviors are learned. So uh, so too is the criminality. Um, so if you are around people that commit a lot of crimes, if you're in a household that commits a lot of crime, then the chances of you becoming a criminal are much, much higher. And that one kind of goes hand in hand with this next one, which is the labeling theory. And so everybody in school had their quote unquote class clown. And that class clown is labeled that. And a lot of times he never really grows out of that label. Uh, and that's because it is kind of a positive reinforcement, just like uh, how it's almost like you would train your dog, the Pavlovian idea of you uh, say bad dog when they jump on the counter and they don't do that. Um, but moreover, if you continually just have this um, positive reinforcement of something, and it's not positive and negative in the Pavlovian sense, is not good or bad. It's addition or subtraction. So if I positively reinforce my dog to bite people by every time they go and uh, bite someone, I give them a treat, that's positive reinforcement. If I want them to stop from doing something, I'll smack them or call them bad dog or something like that. And that kind of is what labeling theory is. Um, you assign someone this label every time they get they behave in a certain way and you call them that and it reinforces it in their brain. Oh, maybe I am the class clown, so I'm going to try to fit into this mold. Um, and they kind of have been trained into that pattern of thought because everybody around them says, you are the class clown. So too is the troublemaker label. Their whole lives, they call, oh, he's nothing but a troublemaker. That person's a troublemaker. And then they get that from their parents. They get that from their school teachers, uh, maybe even their sports coaches, these people who they kind of put in a position of authority. If they just always call them the troublemaker or the bad boy, uh, and oftentimes with the bad boy, um, click or uh, cliche uh, those people lean into those so too with the troublemaker and so there is the theory that the when the kid is called the bad kid or the troublemaker he kind it's kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy they lean into that and they become that troublemaker and oftentimes um in the idea of sociology and deviance, there's kind of three kinds of or three steps in deviance. And the third step is some people will accept this deviant role, this troublemaker role, but then not accept the stigmas of it. They don't accept the bad portions of it and decide that I am going to make this troublemaker into a good thing and I am going to uh, just ignore all of the bad stigmas with it and I'm a troublemaker but I'm not a bad troublemaker and then they kind of use it as a way to justify their errant behavior uh, because they decide that this is who I am and I don't really care what other people think about that so that is the labeling theory that you have uh, someone who has been told they are the troublemaker from a very early age and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and oftentimes they'll just accept that role wholeheartedly and not even consider the stigmas that come with it. Now we get to number five, and this is a very broad one, um, not as broad as the last one we're going to cover today, uh, but this is 
more broadly called the sociological theories, and this is all of the societal ones, the the theories that say, well, society is the person to blame for creating criminals because they live in a criminal society. Uh, very, very high thinking right there, and and that was. That was sarcastic for those of you that could not tell I was being facetious. It is very, a lot of these theories are what they're called and, and there's no deeper than that. Uh, some of them, they sound very similar, like two that we're about to cover here. Um, and their, their difference is so minute as to almost be imperceptible. Uh, so I'll break those ones down a little bit more specifically so that you can understand the difference. So sociological theories, one of the fifth categories of criminology, uh, social determination is the first one. And that one uh, is kind of the sociological theory that we said before. Um, so really, or I'm sorry, the social learning, what it's called, uh, those ones were called uh, biological learning and social learning. Um, so it's similar to that. And so social uh, sociological theory is the first one, social determination, uh, social forces and groups cause people to commit crime. So that is the people in downtown, whatever, downtown New York, downtown city, um, anywhere downtown, typically, uh, you have a culture of gangs and violence because that's where a lot of people are. So the more people you have, the more crimes you have. Uh, that goes hand in hand with the um, logical fallacy, that correlation causation, that more ice cream equals more murders. But really, the more ice cream shops you have in an area, you have more people. More people equals more people that won't want to follow laws and commit crimes one of which is murder. So the same thing is here, social determination. Uh, social forces and groups cause people to commit crimes. The more people you have, the more social groups, the more crime is committed. And when you have this packed, jam-packed area and these poor housing areas, you have people that can't really survive other ways and so they have created a culture of gangs and violence and dealing drugs and when people grow up in that culture well guess what that's all that they know they learn it socially and then that's what they do uh, because people do what they know to do and very often do they break out of those molds even though they have ample opportunity to do so the next one of sociological theories is just simply called enemy and this is a sociological term just as much as it is a criminological term uh, because enemy is simply the feeling of normlessness. And so in sociology and criminology, there is what is called a social norm or something that is normative. And that simply means normal. They just need to make a term close but not close enough to use the same thing. So normlessness is a lack of a norm. And this happens when society changes in a very large way. So someone experiences enemy when my dad, who is 50 eight years old, not really, I don't know how old he is, I think he's 50, um, he's 50, and so he is just in between this generational gap of technology. So my grandmother, or my grandfather, they do not understand technology as much 
as I do because I grew up with technology. And for those who were around, uh, who were still young during 2007 when Steve Jobs, or 2006, six or seven, when Steve Jobs released the iPhone, society changed in a really, really fast way. That one little bit of technology rapidly changed the future in the next couple of years. So someone who was already 30 or 40 when that happened, they experienced a sense of enemy because they were not able to keep up with that super blatant and very quick um, social transformation. Um, people who were younger than that picked up with it and sailed right along. And then people like me who were pretty much born with it, um, that is our society. Our society is one like that. So someone who does not cope well with that feeling of enemy as someone who is more prone to commit a crime. Um, so when someone does not fit in, they don't fit in with society at large, they don't feel a bond to it. And so they don't really regard the societal norms that we have. And these societal norms, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but it's worth delving into a little bit more here. When it comes to deviance, there are different levels of deviance because not all deviance is crime, but all crime is deviance. Um, it's all deviant because it violates social uh, normatives, social norms. And so there are different levels of deviance. So an example of something that is deviant, like I said before, would be someone peeing on the side of the road, but that has become a formal deviant behavior. Uh, and formal deviance is the same as committing a crime. Um, and then there's informal deviance, which is something that is frowned upon. An example of those two, I gave a formal deviance, and then uh, earlier the progression of informal deviance to formal deviance, someone peeing on the side of the road. Something that is informally deviant would be, say, if my pastor started just cussing up a storm on Sunday morning during his sermon. If he got really passionate and just started, that is informally deviant because that is a violation of what is expected behavior for a pastor, um, so that is informal deviance or say someone just spitting on the side of the road as someone walks by them. That is informally deviant. It is not illegal, but it is also not deemed entirely acceptable by society. So then we have enemy and we have someone that maybe doesn't feel like they fit in to society as we have it. Then different cultures, they can call it subculture or countercultures, can... Uh, formulate from a lot of people that express this feeling or feel as though they don't fit in society. And then when that happens, it's someone who doesn't necessarily regard society in the same way as other people do. And they can then commit crimes uh, because they don't really care what society thinks about them. Number 5.3, social disorganization. Sorry, I had to look at my notes there for a second. Social disorganization um, is much more um, localized version of social determination. Social disorganization says that individual neighborhoods is what plays a role. And this is more specifically like the downtown areas, uh, these little 
cliques that people can form, these little gang cultures that people can form in different uh, different areas. So social determination is more social forces at large, and social disorganization, I guess, is a more specific. Uh, one's neighborhood plays the strongest role possible in determining how someone can um, come about. Um, it's a more locale-based version of social determinism, um, and that's pretty much the only difference. Social determination could be apply- applied at a much more broad scale, Um than social disorganization um, because it's more the disorganized parts of cities and towns is what plays a role in the upbringing of young kids uh, who don't know any better, who don't know any different. When social determination can really be applied at any age if, so say, someone gets radicalized at a college campus um, because that never, ever happens, never once. Again, facetiousness. Um, So that could be a form of social determination. Uh, Social forces in groups cause people to commit crimes. Um, So you go onto a college campus and you get really radicalized one way or another. That is social determination. A social force is acting upon you. And that doesn't necessarily have to be applied to crime. Sometimes it can. Like if you have folks like uh, Antifa, uh, radicalized group um, that kind of started on college campuses that became really the real threats to society, the real um, terrorists, internal terrorists. Anyways, um, that is an example of social determination more than the locations in the cities and social disorganization would be more you grow up in a dilapidated city or part of a city, and that is what determines whether or not you will come out to be a criminal. Number six is a a kind of a weird one, uh, and it's concentric zone theory, Uh, and it also is very similar to social disorganization, although this one is kind of the explanation for how social disorganization takes place. And when you look at it in that way, uh, it makes a lot more sense. And so it's concentric zone theory, and the idea is that there are zones of a city. So you have downtown, and then you have a nicer area of a downtown, so... um, if you look at a city and you just kind of circle a bullseye over it and then like um, a target over it, these concentric zones, uh, you have the internal, which is the lowest social economic status zone. Then you have the outskirts of that town. And then you have the suburbs and then you have uh, the country area. And people desire to be out in the quote unquote burbs. And so they leave. But only people who have the correct socioeconomic status can afford to move out of the city. So then you have them progressively moving farther and farther out, which only leaves more people who are of a lower SES, and they just compound upon each other because people who can afford to then move out, leaving only the poorer people and so on and so forth. And they have to stay in the city and then the city gets dilapidated, which then leads to social disorganization because then people have no other way to make means. So naturally, they must revert to crime. The problem with this is it doesn't explain why the people commit 
the crimes such as rational choice does. The problem with a lot of these sociological theories is there has to be some sort of catalyst of events. And the real problem here is that their only explanation is that they're poor. So poor people equals more crime, which is not necessarily true. Bad people equal crime. And when you have a lot of bad people that commit crimes, well, you know what? Crimes is not uh, cr- criminality is not necessarily prosperous. It can be, but the vast majority of the times it is not, um, which is why they end up over and over again coming into these inner city areas because that's where they can afford to live uh, because people want to get out of the suburbs. So that part makes sense. But the 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 flaw in thinking here of a lot of people who tend to lean towards the left with their social policies and they want to help the people in the inner cities. These people are still criminals, first and foremost. That's something to remember. But secondly, their lifestyle that they chose is not a prosperous one. And you can allot as much money as you want there. And there's then the case to be made that, well, a lot of money is allotted to homeless people or the people in the inner cities, but it doesn't actually ever end up there. Um, And there's resources you can actually look into that on how much actually goes to people. And in cities like Los Angeles, um, where they have a humongous homeless population, like it's, it's like a ridiculously low number, like of the budget to give to homeless people that commit a lot of crimes, especially drug crimes, um, like 20, maybe 20 percent of the money allotted actually ever ends up going there. And they have a budget of like four hundred and twenty six million dollars a year goes to homeless people. But anyways, uh, back to what I was saying, the concentric zone theory uh Criminality is not prosperous because most of the times you get caught, you end up in prison, and you can't get a job. Um, so once that I once that kind of kickstarted the catalyst of that cycle began, it is hard to escape it because then there's the stigma of being a prisoner, and it is very hard for those people who actually have been reformed by the criminal justice process to actually get a job because a lot of other people that don't ruin it for them. So there is an understanding there that, yes, it is hard to surmount that, but this theory itself doesn't explain why people commit the crimes. Um, It simply explains the process by which social disorganization takes place, and that is the people that actually have the money and can afford to move out typically do. Um, But then there's a lot of policy made that kind of actually keeps people from who can't afford to or who possibly could from being able to afford moving out of the inner city areas. Uh, There's a lot of policies in those big cities like New York that makes it very difficult for people to actually escape that kind of concentric zone theory trap, which then uh, leaves them only the opportunity to revert to how they used to make end meets, and that's selling dope on street corners and that sort of thing. Now, there comes the final, the seventh category, the interactional theories. And there's a lot of these. Um, so we're only going to cover a couple of them. Uh, there's differential association, um, which is simply, it's practically the same thing as the third one we talked about, as, as social learning. Uh, it's that people are trained into um, 
becoming criminals, but it's a more individualized version of that. Uh, you have someone in your life that is teaching you how to become a criminal. Uh, and then there's cultural deviance, uh, which is a subgroup, um, and it's essentially countercultures and um, people who have decided that our society is not good, so they're going to create a new society, one that is better. Um, case in point, the perfect example is the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. They suffered from cultural deviance. They thought in its entirety, our culture is wrong, so let's do it this way. And that's exactly what they did, and people died, they got shot, it destroyed the city there, the Capitol Hill Zone. Uh, that is the perfect example of cultural deviance. Um, these people, they began, uh, they began as a subgroup, they were Marxists, they were like, the best way to do it is this way, and then they became a counterculture, which is... Um, we believe the opposite of what society and the modern culture now thinks, and we're going to do it our way. We're going to be counter to the popular culture. And then that happened. Uh, what happened to Chaz, if you don't know, uh, they ended up, there was a shootout or someone got shot. I don't remember how many individuals, but a lot of people were hurt. A lot of people had already been calling for the police um, to actually enter in, those who uh, were not able to escape. And ultimately, the police came in and broke it up. Now we have um, social control, um, which this is a good one. This is uh, the opposite to social determination. This is w one that presents a way in which people do not commit crimes because of social pressure to keep them from committing crimes. Uh, so this is the inverse of social determination, which is social forces make people want to commit crimes, uh, this says, and this is social control, that society is what prevents people from committing crimes. So it is under the assumption that in a natural state, people would commit crimes. They would violate social contracts. But because of society as a whole, it is what prevents us from committing crimes because we care about society. And that brings it around to anime. If you don't feel like you fit into crime, you would then revert to this um, anti-good establishment. You would then desire to commit crimes because you don't feel bonded with the social contract uh, that prevents you from committing crimes. And then uh, the last one that I thought was worthwhile of mentioning is the neutralization theory. Uh, neutralization theory is the idea that people commit a crime and then they try to neutralize um, the reasons why they shouldn't have done that. They get rid of them. Uh, they justify their behavior as okay because, oh, well, you know what? I needed to get money so that I could feed little Susie at home. And while that might be justified, there could be better ways for you to do that. So this is the classic example of people who have a sick daughter and rob a bank to get money for their hospital bills. Well, it's a very justifiable motive if if you think about it a little bit. Um, it sounds good, but still you robbed from 
somebody. You violated the law, the social contract of what we decided as a society was a a bad thing to do. You did that. Uh, You violated this law. You violated a lot of different things. And you might say, oh, well, that bank has a huge insurance policy, but ultimately you're still harming somebody. And there might have been better ways for you to do that, for you to get the money. But anyways, social, or I'm sorry, neutralization theory is the I did it because X, Y, Z. I did it because I had this justifiable motive, and that is why I committed a crime. The The thing that a lot of people do uh, when it comes to this one is they think of, oh, well, my uncle had to do this. And they they personalize it, which is a logical fallacy that we talked about uh, maybe two or three weeks ago now. It's a... And so they think because, well, I know someone that can justify why he committed a crime doesn't make the crime justified. It doesn't matter why you did it. You still broke the law. Uh, And that's what you got to think about when it comes to these kind of reasons why people justify breaking the law. The... Here's another one, a logic class we talked about, a slippery slope. Uh, well, you do it one time, could happen again and again and again. And sometimes that happens to be the case. Uh, usually it's not because of slippery slope. It's because, well, once you get into the lifestyle of committing crime, you bump into other characters that have been into it for a while, and then it's very hard to get out because, well, you're going to upset somebody who was counting on you to do this or that for them. You get into the business of having to exchange favors with people. Uh, That is very much the case. Um, There's no such thing as honor among thieves in real life. Snitches are everywhere. That's how most detectives make their living because they have confidential informants. Uh, So the honorable gangster motif that you see in movies in Hollywood, it's not true, even a little bit. Um, Maybe just a little bit, but snitches always exist. There's always the snitch. That's also uh, a position that people get labeled when they're a young kid. The snitches end up being the snitches in real life. So anyways, let's end it on a good note. So there's a lot of theories as to why people commit crimes. Um, It's no surprise because it's rather a mysterious and mystifying thing. Why do some people deem it necessary to violate these social contracts? And ultimately, I would bring it back to what I mentioned before, it is because of the fallen state of man. Um, I'm not claiming the cultural deviance idea, um, or I'm sorry, not the cultural deviance, the uh, social control that people will naturally revert to mass murder and anarchy, but there is, we are inherently selfish creatures, and when people look out for themselves only, they'll do what it takes for them to survive. So... We have these sociological theories and these criminological theories and the whole branch of criminology to find an explanation for why people commit crime. But ultimately it comes down to, well, people are selfish. But we have these ideas to try to come up with ways to fix crime. And I can tell you what it is not. A lot of people believe it's along the lines of the concentric zone, the social disorganization. Well, it's because some people are rich and some people are poor that crime happens. And if only we could give people more education, they wouldn't commit crimes. Well, you know what? The people that have habitually committed crimes, they don't want to go to school. 
They don't want to do that. They don't want to get educated. And if they get incentives and if they get money, you know what they're going to do with it? Most of them are drug addicts. And so you know what they're going to do? They are going to go and purchase more drugs. Um, And they don't want to be educated. They have a culture about them that part of the idea, the theory is true. They have created this culture, this subgroup, this sub-society in which they have lived for the majority of their lives. So the solution to crime is not giving people more money and it is not giving them more education. The answer is church. Um, That is what originally kept people from committing crimes. They were in the early days of America. Um, They had a strong bond around a church, and crimes were much lower back then. There was also less people, yes, but there was a very tight-knit community around the words of the Lord, and that is our salvation. One and only opportunity to become better is through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the one and only solution. Take it or leave it. No other opportunity outside of that. So that's what we're going to end on uh, for our discussion. I have a couple of announcements to make now, though. There is one version of crime theory that um, I did not cover, and that is critical race theory, which is something that a lot of people have been talking about lately, and that's what it started out as a model uh, for how people committed crimes. I do address that and some other common misconceptions around the statistics of crime. And I address it in an essay that only Patreon supporters can get. Uh, So if you want to get exclusive essays on stuff that I'll be writing about, on stuff that is connected or different ideas around the topics I discuss on the podcast, you can go there, you can support me, and then you can get some extra benefits. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please leave ratings and reviews. And to incentivize um, my listeners, I am doing a giveaway. I got a hat in the mail. I have one for me, and I have one for one of you beautiful people out there wherever you call home. If you guys want to win a Food for Thought podcast hat uh, that I designed, it's a very nice hat. There will be pictures of it on my Instagram, um, Food for Thought. Let me spell it out for you real quick. That is F-O-O-D, number four, uh, together, that's one word, and then underscore T-H-O-U-G-H-T, one, one word. Again, so F-O-O-D, four underscore T-H-O-U-G-H-T-1. And it will be on there. Pictures of the hat um, will be on that page. Um, And so then the way that you get inserted into the drawing, because I'm going to do a drawing, um, you're going to share um, pictures of your ratings and reviews um, either on Spotify, which there's no review, there's just a rating, um, or on Apple Podcasts, which is the more preferred version. Um, So leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and take a screenshot, share it, and then tag me in it. Um, But for that one, you can tag Jonathan Coots 03 
um, or food for thought, whichever one you want, whichever one you prefer. Um, so tag either one of those accounts on there and I will automatically insert you into the drawing. And then in a week or two, we'll do the drawing. Um, and whoever wins the hat, I will send it to them. So folks, that's all that I had for you today. I will see you next week. In the meantime, go learn something new, learn something real, and next week I'll be back with some more food for thought. See you guys.